My name is Andy Moore, and uh, this is week three in quarantine, I guess. Um, I do get some uh, solace out of every other podcast out there having equally bad audio quality. Uh, So thanks, listeners, for bearing with us and everybody else. Joining me today, uh, as always, is Bailey Perkins. Hello. Hello, everybody. Scott Melton. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? How are you? I'm well. Uh, better than you because you work in healthcare, and I imagine your life is a little hectic right now. <laughs> it's it's a little different than usual, but we're getting through it. Nice. Uh, and also joining us today is uh, House Minority Leader Emily Virgin. Hello, ma'am. How are you? Hi. I'm hanging in there. Hope everybody else is too. Yeah. That's, I think that's the new introduction, right? For every yeah. every conference call, it's not, hey, how are you? It's like, how are you doing? How are you mm-hmm. doing okay? Uh, checking out. Also, um, not on the mic, but nearby is baby Margot, my six-week-old daughter. So if she starts crying, I will hit mute and let you guys all keep talking. Uh, I imagine she'll get hungry here, probably right in the middle of our conversation. Yeah. Hi, Margot. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, let's start off as we have the last few weeks with a quick check-in about where we're at with the coronavirus epidemic. Um, Scott, I know that you've been working, obviously, closely with this um, for your job in healthcare. Um, also, we text about it all the time. What's the latest today? Um, you know, so at the at the moment, I mean, I was texting with somebody about this right before we came on. Like, I feel like it's now my uh, my colleagues that work in the emergency rooms and ICUs might disagree with me. They might say that it's. Uh, it's, it's worse than this. I feel like we're in a little bit of the calm before the storm, right? Like it's definitely here. Um, we're definitely seeing, you know, we're definitely seeing lots of patients that have symptoms that are consistent. Um, it's, a, it's tough because one of the things that we're learning or we seem to be learning about coronavirus is that it can look, it can look like so many different things, right? There's people that have confirmed cases of severe disease who started out with like a sinus infection or what we thought was a sinus infection, right? There's people that start out looking like the flu. It's not as common for people to start out looking like allergies because coronavirus by and large seems to have a fever, but not not always. So one of the challenges that I think some of us are having, especially as so many primary care doctors across the city have moved to virtual visits, right? We're doing visit visits over, you know, video conferencing rather than in person in the office to try and maintain that social distancing is, you know, most of us, if we've been in practice for any amount of time at all, can walk in a room and say, okay, I'm going to do the flu test, but like, I can tell you that this person has the flu, right? Or you can look at a, a throat of a person and say, we're going to do the test, but like, this really looks like strep or not, as the case may be. Um, coronavirus is is seeming to be challenging because it doesn't have as characteristic a set of features that let us know with a high degree of suspicion this is what you have. Um, so that's, the, that's one challenge that we're seeing. That being said, I have seen a lot of patients this week via video conference that I've been concerned probably have the virus, but the, the, uh, the numbers are not yet overwhelming. 
Um, I'm sitting here looking at the uh, State Department of Health executive report. Uh, this is from yesterday. The next one will come out later this afternoon. As of yesterday, um, looks like the state of Oklahoma, we have about 37% of our ICU beds are available, um, about 40%, 42% of what's called a med surge bed, which is another way of saying like a general hospital bed. Um, lots of operating room beds available. There's 751 ventilators on hand. Um, as of yesterday, we had uh, 248 cases. I believe that that's gone up to 330 today. Um, of the cases that were confirmed yesterday, 41 were in the ICU. There were 334 persons that were under investigation. So this is people that have been tested and we don't have results uh, of those 92 were in the ICU. So um, it's coming, um, but it's not, the storm, the storm isn't here yet. I think that looking at kind of national demographic data and uh, the various models that are out there, we're, would project that the, the, the surge is going to happen of kind of patients in about the next 10 days, um, somewhere kind of around the first week of April, midway through the first week of April, April 5th, 6th, 7th, something like that. Bailey, last week, was that last week or earlier this week? Gosh, I guess early this week, there was a press conference, right, where the um, governor made some amendments to the executive order um, and kind of some updates. Do you want to kind of do a, an overview of that? Yeah, so there has been a lot of movement in a very rapid way on the approaches to um, how cities and the state is responding to uh, what citizens need to do during the coronavirus outbreak. And so earlier this week, Governor Stitt um, declared a safer at home order which is similar to shelter in place without teeth is the way I will describe it. And so his intent is to have those who fall into the vulnerable category. So if you're over the age of 60 or you have a pre-existing medical condition that makes you immune compromised um, or um, fall into some type of vulnerable category, then you're encouraged to stay home until April 30th. He also limited for businesses that reside, initially it was just 19 counties. So I think this goes back to the way that Scott was describing um, the, the rapid nature of this outbreak, that it started out with 19 counties that had confirmed cases of coronavirus in them. So initially any business within that area that isn't considered essential was asked to close um, by yesterday. And now it's expanded to 32 counties that now have confirmed cases of coronavirus where um, those businesses in that area, if they aren't considered essential and, um, and if they are operating as essential um, businesses, then they need to social distance within their vicinities or have accommodations to work from home. Because um, I was actually at a press conference about 15 minutes ago um, that the question was brought up if there are businesses that are considered essential, but they have more than 10 people in them. And he said, well, that's a violation of the order if they have more than 10 people in a space. And so um, those things are, are happening now. There's a lot of um, different perspectives about whether or not he's taking enough action on that case or, or whether this is the, the right strategy. Um, but there was an announcement at that same press conference that said that OSU 
was granted 10,000 additional test kits. So that's going to increase the ability for um, OSU, OU, and the State Department of Health to take those uh, samples and get um, responses back within 24 hours on whether or not we know if more people in the state have coronavirus, which we know that number's going to go up. So, and then on the federal front, Congress passed today, and when I say Congress, I mean the U.S. House passed uh, the stimulus bill, which is a $2 trillion package, which I'm sure we can go into more detail later, but that also happened. So we have um, the governor's, if you want to see actually what is all on the governor's um, essential business list, the uh, Department of Commerce has um, a whole two-page list of all of the categories of what is essential um, business in the state. And then he added some more clarification onto what it is. But I mean, it's it's a range of businesses. So that's, I'll just say that. So, Is it only two pages? Because it seems like it keeps growing. So <laughs> it, it could probably be more at this point. So who knows? But it, it's very vague as well. So it says, you know, like healthcare and agriculture, right? It says like these broad categories. So a lot of even nonprofits, I've been on some nonprofit calls where many organizations are like, well, do we qualify as this? Or what does it mean if we are, mm -hmm. you know, out and about and we say we work for this, will we be okay, you know, being out in the streets? And so that's another factor is that there's no um, mechanisms to control who's working for an essential business or not. And, you know, there's not an enforcement mechanism to say, hey, you need to go back home. So is, is there anything more Oklahoma than the fact that dispensaries and Hobby Lobby are both considered essential, right? <laughs> so essentially Oklahoma thing. And I heard that golf courses were too. So I don't know if that's really right. true, but I heard that some golf courses were open yesterday. But so. you can, you can socially distance on a golf course. That makes sense. Well, I especially can, cause I'm always off the fairway, but uh, yeah. leader of virgin, I feel like this is a great time to, uh, what are your thoughts about the state's response to coronavirus so far? Yeah, well, um, you know, we're we're dealing with some issues that are that are um, hi, Marco. <laughs> we're dealing with some issues that every state is dealing with, and that is pretty unfortunate because we're seeing a real lack of uh, leadership from the federal government in terms of the president not taking control of. Um, Defense Production Act, things like that. And so what we're hearing from our governor and people on his task force is that we are competing with other states when it comes to getting access to tests, when it comes to getting access to that personal protective equipment that our healthcare provider need, healthcare providers need. And so that's really frustrating that every state feels like they have to compete against one another to get access to the resources that we need when really we need the federal government to step up and say, you know, we're going to start manufacturing PPE and distributing it to the states uh, so that we don't have to compete with each other. But so that's one that's one aspect of all this is the availability of the PPE and the testing. Um, you guys already talked about the testing a little bit, but I think it's important to note that as we ramp up the testing and as those tests become more widely available, that 
our numbers are inevitably going to increase because Scott, as you said, you have seen people who probably might have it, um, but you haven't tested them. And so when those folks are able to get tested, of course, our numbers are going to go up. We've heard the governor say that we probably have a thousand cases um, and it might be more than that. Um, so basing, um, basing our actions off of our official numbers is not realistic. Um, we need to think about how many we actually have. No, I totally agree. You know, my <clears throat> thought, I mean, I, I feel like this is the week where at the state level, Oklahoma really tried to ramp up their response. Several of our municipalities have been more aggressive for the last, you know, preceding seven to 10 days. Um, and, you know, people ask kind of, what do I think about all this stuff? And I'm like, well, it's better than like, you know, Instagramming yourself at a restaurant, but it's also, you know, it's not as good as like what I'd like to see because the issue with like, you know, the issue with the safer at home, right? It's like, you're trying to split the difference and this isn't, this isn't something where you can split the difference, right? Like it's not social distancing. If you're someone who's at risk to get the disease, number one, there are 20 and 30 year olds all over the country who are super sick about ventilators. Number two, in order for social distancing to work, it has to be everybody. You can't just do part of the population, right? Number three, saying that we're only going to apply this to counties that have confirmed cases, right? This is like, you know, I mean, I've, I, I am not a cattle rancher by trade, but um, my understanding is that like, you're not supposed to wait until they're all out of the pasture before you close the gate. You're supposed to do it before. And what it's, the, the, the data that we're working with, it's not only limited in terms of its scope, right? You alluded to this, that like, you know, we have a, we clearly have a bunch of people who are infected that we don't know about because we haven't tested them. But even the people that we have tested, the data that we're getting, these updated results, I can tell you are between at least two days old and in some cases as old as nine days, right? So this is a snapshot in time that's not today. It's a snapshot in time that reflected the state of the epidemic a week ago. Um, you know, and in a week from now, if the cases have, you know, quadrupled or gone up five times or 10 times or whatever the case may be, that's going to reflect where the was, epidemic was today, not where it is then. Um, and so we should be acting, we should be acting on what we think the numbers look like in the, like, not in, like, we should be acting on where we think the numbers are going, not where they are. And I agree with that, because I'm even concerned with the arbitrary ideas of trying to get people home and businesses by um, Easter or these thought processes of trying to get, you know, people back to work as soon as possible instead of how do we mitigate this current crisis and reduce the number of people who have it so that our economy can eventually get back to where it needs to be. So that's definitely a concern. Yeah, I mean, we're hearing a lot about, um, you know, what, what I've called for is the statewide shelter in place because, Scott, as you said, just because a county may not have a confirmed case right now doesn't mean that they don't have an actual case in their county. Um, I saw something, it's been sent to me by a few different people, but uh, the county by county approach you can think of as having a peeing section in the pool just doesn't work. Um, you have to you have to apply this statewide because as we know, you can go to a different county in Oklahoma whenever you want. 
Um, and so we've got to we've got to have a more proactive approach from the state level instead of just reacting once a county has an official case, um, because I think as we've seen across the country, just encouraging people to do things is not really enough right now. We have to you have to have that strong leadership and that strong edict uh, to keep people safe and. I, I hear all the time about business concerns and I sympathize with those because people need jobs to pay for their rent, to pay for their food, all, all of the things that you have to pay for. But the longer that we go without a statewide order, the longer that businesses are going to suffer. Because if we don't stop the spread now, then businesses are going to have to be closed for an even longer period of time. So we need to just do it now. Um, to stop the spread and hopefully flatten the curve. Um, and and then we'll be able to get back to normal as quickly as possible. But as long as people are free to go wherever they want to go in some counties and businesses are free to stay open, um, then we're going to keep seeing these new cases and keep seeing the community spread. One, one question I have is, you know, Bailey referenced the, uh, the second kind of, I guess this is the third now kind of recovery package that has been passed at the federal level. Um, so there was first, there was the initial response, then there was the rescue package housed by the, passed by the House. This is a, a plan that was drafted largely by the Senate. Um, I suspect that there will be more federal action coming, but one, one response that the federal government has that I feel like the state of Oklahoma doesn't for a whole bunch of reasons, not least of which is our constitution, is that the federal government can say, we're going to spend two trillion dollars, right? We're going to we're going to put it on the credit card. We'll figure out how to pay for it later. Maybe we'll raise taxes and pay for it. Maybe we'll print money and pay for it. But like we'll deal with we'll deal with the spending of the money at a later date, um, and spend it now because we have to. Oklahoman, of course, we can't do that because we're required to have a balanced budget. Our budgeting process is very complicated. A lot of our dollars are already accounted for. Yada yada yada. So, I guess my question is: since we can't do that, since the state of Oklahoma can't just send every Oklahoman a thousand bucks to complement the 1200 that they're going to get presumably from the federal government. What tools from your perspective does the state of Oklahoma have to mitigate the economic damage that is being caused, you know, by the epidemic and the resulting social distancing? What, what resources does the state have to mitigate the economic damage that's being put on families and businesses so that in however many weeks when we can start lifting these restrictions, people have jobs and businesses to go back to. Yeah, so the tools that we have, as you said, are quite different from what the federal government can do. Um, only the federal government is going to be able to pass these stimulus packages that are a trillion dollars, two trillion dollars. And that's a really important component of this whole response effort. Uh, we have to have the federal government be able to do things like that um, because states, as you said, we have to have balanced budgets. We can't operate uh, in the red. So we're limited to a lot of different policy changes that we can make. So some of those that we've made already, a few of them deal with unemployment and we're gonna see uh, some help coming from the federal government on employment but right now what we've done is the governor has waived the waiting period for unemployment benefits. Um, he has waived, uh, actually the, the Employment Security Commission has waived themselves um, the requirement that you file a weekly report listing your job search 
just not realistic right now. Um, and they've also waived charges to employers um, so that we can get, instead of an employer saying, well, we're closed right now, but I'm not going to lay you off. We want them to say, all right, I'm going to let my employees access the unemployment system rather than keeping them on, but not really paying them. Um, so that's an important aspect. Um, but as I said, that's limited to the people who would traditionally qualify for unemployment. The federal legislation is going to open that up to some uh, contract workers, um, 1099 folks, people who are, are in the gig economy. Um, and so people who aren't traditionally eligible are going to be eligible now, and that's going to be funding coming from the federal government. Um, and then in terms of um, businesses, you know, it's it's difficult um, for us to really respond in in mass on the business side of things. Um, what we really can do as a state is advocate for what we need um, from the federal level. So businesses who, especially those small businesses that are really hurting, laying folks off, they're going to be eligible for payroll grants uh, so that they aren't looking at a loan. They're actually looking at a grant to keep their uh, employees on, on the payroll. So that's going to be a really important aspect of what's happening, happening federally. Um, and then there's going to be a lot of money that comes from the federal government to the states. And so we're going to be in charge of administering that. Um, so there's a lot that's still to come. Um, and, but as a state, um, one of the other things that, uh, my caucus has been calling for is a freeze on evictions and foreclosures. Um, that's something that people are, are talking about a lot, um, because when they're laid off and there's a lag and when they can get unemployment or they may not be eligible for unemployment yet, um, they need to still be able to pay their rent. Practically, most courthouses are closed um, in terms of civil dockets. So uh, you could technically be served with an eviction notice, but there really isn't an enforcement mechanism right now because it's unlikely that the courts are going to take up uh, small claims dockets, eviction uh, foreclosure dockets. But um, we need for uh, the state to take action on that. So again, it's not a county by county approach. And the people uh, feel just have a little bit of relief um, that they're not going to get kicked out of their home during all of this. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Leader Virgin, thank you so much for joining us today. That's there's so much going on, I feel like, day to day that it's hard to keep up. And I thank you for taking time aside from your schedule to visit with us. Depending on how long this thing lasts, we may need to have you back on in a couple of weeks to explain where we're at then, because I am certain it will be very different than where we are today. Yes, it will likely change, so I will uh, be happy to come back. Okay, so let's next talk a little bit about the economic impact or what we expect the economic impact to be of the COVID-19 pandemic. Certainly we don't know, right? We got the stimulus bill that we were just, just talking about with Leader Virgin um, that just got passed today and it will help some, although like, as we said, there's wide critiques that it's not enough for most people and many businesses. Um, specifically, let's talk about it um, as it impacts the state. And Bailey, you and I talked some about what that looks like with the 
impact on revenue and potential for revenue failures. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So our listeners may remember um, a few episodes back, we talked about legislative process and our Oklahoma legislature has to uh, finish its business and pass a budget by the last Friday of May, uh, which is known as sine die. And usually this is the time where the legislature is drafting up um, omnibus bills that would fund our state agencies and state services. Um, However, we are in a time of an outbreak and a crisis in our state. And so the legislature didn't meet last week, nor is it meeting this week. And so that shortens the timeline on their ability to do what they need to do. And so when we're looking at the whole landscape of gas being at like 99 cents right now, a gallon, um, then many businesses, you know, not knowing how to keep the doors open, we're seeing like the highest unemployment um, insurance, I guess, claims um, than ever before. Uh, What is that going to look like for um, our state revenue base? And so um, there's a lot of things that the legislature is going to have to consider and figure out um, how we maintain a balanced budget, how much we're going to take out of reserves. Because also we talked in past conversations about even um, the tribal gaming um, feud, for lack of a better word. And even so that's going to have an impact on the budget, plus, you know, everything that's going on with the economy. And so um, it will be interesting to see on what happens and how the dollars that are flowing from the three packages uh, passed by the federal government um, will be able to to filter through and and help stop the bleeding in the economy. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I don't know exactly how it's going to affect Oklahoma, so I know it's going to be bad. And it's it's compounded by the fact that there's an oil price war, right? Like, uh, what you know, crude oil right now is trading at, at historic lows. I, I I shouldn't say that. I don't know offhand in inflation adjusted dollars how low it was in the late seventies and early eighties with some of the you know when the bottom fell out then. But but it's it, even if it's not historic lows, it's really low, right? Um, and so you've got a bad oil and gas sector right now. You've got this pandemic, the unemployment and layoffs. You know, I think that the stimulus packages that we've seen from the federal governments are going to hopefully help some businesses keep open their doors. But while they're keeping their doors open, they're not going to be generating any revenue, right? So, like, you're going to have loss, uh, you know, a loss of business tax revenue there. You're going to also have a loss of sales tax because people aren't spending. Right, and that's the other thing is you're going to have a loss of sales tax. These these, you know, these stimulus checks that um, that folks are going to get from the feds, I think the hope, I say stimulus recovery, whatever we didn't want to call it, these checks that people are going to get from the from the federal government, I think are, the hope is that this is enough to like help people make it and like pay their rent and their bills. But, you know, all the places, you know, a lot of places that you would want to go to spend your money is, are closed anyway. Um, but even if they were open, people aren't going to have the same cash that they had four weeks ago. Um, so I think, I think it's clear that, that, you know, collections to the treasury are going to be down significantly, but how much and how drastic the, the action the legislature is going to have to take. Um, I don't know. Well, and I think the thing about this, right, is that it, this affects literally everybody, right? Like there's no one that's not, not affected by this in some way. So speaking of 
other people that this affects. Uh, we are joined now by House Majority Leader John Eccles. Hello, Leader Eccles. How are you? Good. How are you guys doing? We're good. Yes, we're good, Mr. Leader. I appreciate you joining us. Yes. It's good to be on. So we were just talking about the economic impact of the COVID-19 epidemic. And um, so we want to talk to you a little bit about that. And then specifically, like how this potentially affects the state budget. It's not, it's not positive. <laughs> the, the, you know, the state budget was already hurting because of the downturn in the oil and gas um, economy. I was talking to somebody. Um, I, I don't know how old you guys are. I'm 40. I still remember as a 16 year old when gas hit triple digits, you know, it was like 102 and I thought that was ridiculously high. Uh, you could buy uh, gas at the Sam's in House District 90 for 95 cents two days ago. Um, that's rough. I mean, we're not going to have, we're, we're not going to have, our, some of our businesses just aren't going to make it. I mean, that just is what it is. Then you compound that with not just the state, but with cities because most of us are doing the responsible thing. We're social distancing. We're staying at home. We need to protect people. It's the right thing to do. But that's going to have a real real effect on um, sales tax collections, which is what cities rely on. That's that's what they're trying to that's what they're trying to get. So it's going to be it, it's rough right now. Do you, speaking of that, you know, I think a lot of people have talked about the way that our tax system is structured, right? How cities are funded through sales tax and um, the, the school funding formula is a whole other dissertation on its own. Do you think this pushes the tax reform discussion up at all? Like that it, I mean, certainly it highlights it, but do you think this will create an appetite for the state to look at how to change that so that it's a little more I don't know, just, I don't want to say equitable, but that it's a little more responsive to the, the, our current economy and where our jobs are. Yeah. If you look at Oklahoma, Andy, you and I have talked about this. If you look at Oklahoma's tax structure, there are three main sources of tax revenue that every state gets and every state's the same property tax, income tax, and sales tax. The most stable is property tax. Uh, obviously. I mean, uh, anyone that, you know, property values are the most stable. The second most stable is uh, income tax and the most volatile is sales tax. Income tax is based upon what the economy is actual doing. Sales tax is based upon the perception of the economy, not even what it's really doing, what people perceive. So in Oklahoma, we have one of the lowest property taxes in the nation. We have uh, a low to medium income tax and a high sales tax. Now, if anyone were to go to the state capitol and argue to increase property taxes, they would be run off with pitchforks and torches, and there is no chance of that happening. But we do need to have a talk about our overall tax structure eventually. Are we doing things, and are we funding all levels of government, not just the state, the counties and the cities, in a way that makes sense? Oklahoma's a low-tax state. It's going to remain a low-tax state. That's not going to change. The, the issue is, can we have a global discussion that's been kind of hairy because uh, one of the great ways to get an idea killed at the Capitol is to throw out a half-baked idea. <laughs> <laughs> People are more likely to be no than they are to be, mm -hmm. point of phrase from you, Andy, than, than they are to be let's fix it. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to say, no, we don't want to do it. We're, we're scared. Uh, change is always scary. But I do think you're going to see more of a talk that centers not just around the state, 
but how do we properly fund and maintain our low tax environment, uh, the city, state, and counties? Right, because so I mean, go yeah, go ahead, Bailey. Well, no, go ahead, Andy, because I have a, a different question. But okay, well, I was going to say, you know, if you take all of the all the revenue sources that we have at every level of government, and you throw them all in one pot, like, is there a way to throw them all in one pot and then to disperse them at the various levels that is more equitable than, I mean, I get, you know, how it's set up now is basically like, okay, well, this money goes to you and this money goes to you and it's cleaner for accounting, right? Um, I used to work with a program that we were funded through nine different funding streams. And so trying to attribute, you know, what supplies we bought on which funding stream was always a, a juggling match, right? And and the state government is like that times 8 billion. Um, and so, um, I get how it got this way, but is do you see a way that that it could be done that would make more sense and and maybe not hit any one level as negatively when when things turn south? I I think you would have a hard time putting it all in one pot and then having the state disperse it because I think the further and even in my philosophy though the further away you get from the people the less accountable government you have and what I mean by that is I think city councils are far more accountable than say the state legislature. And I think the state legislature is far more accountable than say the federal uh, system right now. So I don't know that you could, I don't know that the public would accept putting it all in one pot, but I do think we need to look at diversification of streams because right now we really have winners and losers when things go up or things go down. But we have that in state government all the time. I mean, here in house district 90, we have OCCC. OCCC doesn't get money from the commissioner and land office, which is the uh, set up at statehood, holds various oil and gas and property interests. So what happened when we went through a downturn? We didn't cut any, any money from CLO because it was separate, but we cut all of the, the two-year universities that didn't get CLO money. Well, that made absolutely no sense. And I spent three years finally getting that collected. I think we're slowly breaking down silos like that but it's gonna be, and I think it's getting better, Andy, than, than it has in a while, but it's still gonna take some time. I don't want you to think, and I don't want anybody watching this to think that all of a sudden we're gonna, we're gonna come out of this, see these problems, and everything's gonna change immediately. Um, I think it'll be a slow, gradual process, but I do think those conversations are happening in a way that they were not happening when I first got elected. You go back in time, seven years ago, um, nobody was talking about stuff like this. Mm -hmm. Well, appreciate um, that insight, Leader Eccles. Um, earlier in um, our conversation, we were talking about how the legislature is experiencing some unprecedented times with the closure of the Capitol last week and this week in the middle of the time where you usually get to work on our state budget. And so um, with this now condensed timeline to meet the constitutional requirements of, you know, signing dying by that last Friday in May, uh, what does priorities at the Capitol look like? And what does the budget projection look like? Are we going to have to tap into some rainy day funds or what is it going to look like to make sure that we'll have a, a balanced budget and needs are met? Baylor, those are some great questions. So just because we're not at the Capitol, as you know, and, and I'm glad it's very difficult right now, not being at the Capitol, not being able to meet face to face. 
but I go back to what I said in the beginning. It's, it's just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. We're not getting together in groups. We're, we're, we've all, like everybody on here, I've been on more conference calls in the last two weeks than I ever have in my entire life. Entirely new set of pet peeves about people that don't go mute on conference calls. I'm sure we all can relate to <laughs> <laughs> pet peeves I never had before. Um, the, but I was even today, though, I was on a two hour call with the speaker, uh, the minority whip. Um, I was on, uh, I got to hear some of what's going on in the budget. Uh, Chairman Wallace um, and uh, our vice chairman, Kyle Hilbert, are working hard with the Senate and the governor. Uh, there are some disagreements now as to whether or not we should use the uh, rainy day fund. Um, I think Chairman Wallace is better to, to answer those questions. I do know I'm going to not speak, and this is hard for me, because um, every time I say something, all three of you guys know a lot about what's going on at the Capitol. Every time I say something, it's taken as like a House leadership position. So I feel like I can never have my own positions. That's fair. So, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm about to say something that is a John Eccles position. Can't stress this enough. I'm not speaking on behalf of House leadership. Um, I'm not saying they're against it, but this is my position. I'm not stigling anything. I believe the federal government is going to come in next year and help fill a lot of state budget holes. And the reason I believe that for those of us that are policy nerds, and at the end of the day, that's what I am. So I'm not picking on anybody. You guys know, I mean, I'm a policy, I'm a self-professed policy nerd. They're political guys or policy guys. I love policy. If you go back and look what what's happened, literally back to the Spanish flu pandemic, you look at the after 9-11, you look at after the, um, after the, the Great Recession, the federal government came in and actually helped plug state budget holes. I have every reason to believe that's what's likely to happen next year. So if I, for John Eccles' position, not the state's position, we need to dip into a little bit of the rainy day account because my goodness, it's raining, like it's time. We have $1.2 million and we need to be honest with people and saying we're dipping into the rainy day account. I'm not talking about taking a ton, to, but take a little bit, three, four, some, some amount where we stabilize the budget and then help people brutally honest. If the federal government comes in next year and helps, we're going to help stabilize the budget. If the federal government doesn't, next year will be a very difficult year. But my position is you have a rainy day fund for such a time as this. So again, I would, I would not take all of it. I wouldn't even come close to that. I wouldn't take, I wouldn't take, I wouldn't take a, a third of our savings. But again, we have $1.2 billion in savings. So I think we need, that's what we need to do on the budget side. And I think there are a lot of members that agree with me. Savings are for emergencies, and this would be the definition of an emergency. I, I, would, I would agree with you. Mr. Leader, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a question that we had right before you came on. Uh, we had uh, Minority Leader Virgin on, and I had asked, I asked her this question as well. I'm just curious to hear what your response is. So the federal government has now passed three kind of recovery packages. As you're mentioning, I'm sure there's going to be more over the coming weeks, months, and years. What are the tools that the federal government has to try and help stabilize the damage to the economy right now is they can say, we're going to spend it, send everybody a check. We'll figure out how to pay for it later. We'll pay for it at some point, but like we can, we can give everybody some money 
and worry about the details later. Obviously, that's not a tool that's available to the state of Oklahoma because of a whole bunch of reasons, not least of which is our constitution. Um, and we just can't, we don't have the money to just do that without really drastic changes in our funding streams, which is not, not going to happen right now. So from your standpoint, as you mentioned, like with, with the economic damage that this is wreaking on Oklahomans, there are pe- people are going to lose jobs, businesses are going to shutter, and, and there's only so much that we can do to prevent that. From your standpoint, what are the tools that the state government has, maybe that are different than the federal government, to try and mitigate the economic damage that's going to be visited on Oklahoma businesses and families? Man, that's such a great question. If I could take one second before I, and I didn't watch the segment segment on Leader Virgin, but I'd like to brag on her for just a second um, and frankly brag on the entire, the legislature for the state of Oklahoma. You talked about what the federal government did. I mean, what the federal government did, they finally got something done and I'm really glad they did. But one of the things that become very clear on the federal level is that the coronavirus has done nothing to stop hyper-partisanship on the federal level. Like it is alive and well, our federal government is dysfunctional as ever. Let's contrast to what happened in the Oklahoma, in the Senate too, but I'm gonna specifically talk about the House. And I'm not gonna take credit for this. What I'm gonna do is share it with everyone who deserves it. When this happened, Leader Virgin, Speaker McCall, um, Chairwoman Tammy uh, West and Chairwoman Cindy Munson, we all came together right away. We had a bipartisan caucus. We passed a funding bill unanimously. We changed our rules on the House side to protect our citizens unanimously. Um, we had a bipartisan bicaucus or bicameral press conference. What happened in Oklahoma is the exact opposite. Not that Leader Virgin and I don't have disagreements. I mean, that, that sometimes you can get so bipartisan, you pretend like disagreements don't, don't exist. That's wrong too, but, but we still disagree. I know that's not a shocker to anybody, but what we did do is put all of that aside and so far, and this becomes important to answer your question. So far, we are working together in a bipartisan way. It's not even close, better than anything I've ever been a part of. And nobody gets credit for that as much as everyone does because everyone decided the state of Oklahoma, it, as you said, it, for such times as it's raining, it's for emergencies, we're in an emergency, and that's what we're talking about. So in that environment, the state has a lot more resources. And because if we're constantly worried about in the majority party, no matter what we do, the minority party is going to be against it. Or if the minority party is constantly worried about whatever idea. So let's stop calling majority majority because let's make it real because we're real people. If, if Emily is constantly worried that whatever John does, if she's against it, her base will go crazy. Or John's worried that whatever I do, Emily's going to immediately come beat me up because it's personal. It's not leader leader version, leader Eccles. I mean, we're real people. We're real Oklahomans. It's a lot harder to get stuff done. We're not in that environment right now. We're in an environment where we're able to sit down, really discuss, have strong disagreements. So some things I would like to see happen while we're in an environment like that. We have the opportunity to do a lot for the healthcare industry. Uh, We have some uh, pay pay bills uh, where we can change some stuff with our physician's assistants to get them higher reimbursement rates from the federal government. We have some stuff to make higher reimbursement rates from insurance companies for telemed, something we need to be doing desperately. 
Um, we have the ability and the state has already done it. I'll commend Governor Stitt to push back filing till July for state income tax. We're analyzing right now what would be the effect if we said to Oklahoma businesses, hold off on paying in your sales tax, just hold off for a while. Now we got to analyze that. We can't just jump in with both feet and, and host it. But we're looking at that option. We're looking at options dealing with property taxes. What happens if we freeze property taxes? Um, we have a very long, we, we have the second longest constitution on planet earth. A lot of things that make sense we can't do because our constitution says not to. But those are the things we're looking at. And we're focusing heavily on the healthcare sector and on economic development. And really these calls, I mean, not just these, we're having uh, weekly updates from Governor Stitt with the legislature. And he's not doing, and I should brag on him, he's not doing a Republican update and a Democrat update. We're all doing it together. Everybody's on the same phone call. We're, we're letting um, uh, Chairwoman Munson and Chairwoman West, when the legislature does have the ability to deal with some of those calls, uh, they're sharing it together. Uh, as long as we keep doing stuff like that, these ideas that I'm throwing out, I think they've got a lot of, a, a lot of a lot of chance of happening. What I think is happening is everybody's kind of saying, let's lay down our sword for a season. Yeah, we're going to disagree later. That's, we should disagree later. That's what politics is about. But for now, let's work on these things together and take some risks. And I hope that's what we do. So in addition to the budget, clearly you have to pass a budget. It's constitutionally required uh, before the end of May. But given everything else, are, I assume there's, I mean, there's going to be a, a set of, of bills that just you just can't hear because things are not normal and that's okay. Besides the budget, are you guys still working towards anything or is, is it at a point now where you think, you know what, like we're just going to do what we have to do this year and everything else will have to be refiled in the future? It's an in-between. So it, nobody knows what the world is going to look like in May. That's why we've recessed. I mean, that. There have been two editorials by um, the two major newspapers in Oklahoma, and they've both said we should adjourn. I really wish one of the three of you was on the editorial board. <laughs> that is like the war in a, in a long in a long long list of bad ideas. That's by far the worst. I mean, that, that is somebody that has no idea how the political process works, and those are our two major newspapers. So it's a little frustrating uh, that they do that. Well, and we shouldn't adjourn. We should recess which is what we're doing now. We are in recess to a call of the chair. If things get better and we can come back and let's say we have three weeks in May where we can really work. Yeah, I mean, I bet we we won't hear it like a normal year. But we'll, we'll run through some bills. Let's say things get worse. We may be looking at three bills plus a budget. I mean, I'm talking about the bills I talked about, like the 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 CRNA bill that's agreed by and maybe the parity bill for telemedicine, then we pass a budget and go home. Right now, Leader David and I, we had a phone call today. We're working on an in-between plan. We're going back and forth and I'm figuring out what bills does the Senate see as important? And then what bills does the House see as important? We've engaged our House chairman and said, what are your key bills? What, what came out of your committee that you view as critical for the state of Oklahoma? Um, we're critical. But the, the political popular thing I'm supposed to say is pass the budget and go home. But the reality is the earlier question you asked, which was a great question, what are you going to do to help? We don't have an army. What we do is pass legislation. Like if we have these ideas that will be helpful, 
we got to pass bills. We're not dictators. Um, so I'm, I'm hesitant to give you a number. Um, everyone that has a bill wants a number. You know, how many are you going to hear? Yeah, I, I'm, I really was more curious, and I don't know if you're at a point you can speak to this, but of like, what are some of those bills that that are the ones that are going to float to the top? You mentioned like the those healthcare ones, but the regular run of the mill, normal session policy bills um, that are worthwhile. I mean, I, I assume if it was me, right? Like the line is somewhere between new license plates um, <laughs> to like to actual budget bills. And and there's a, a ton of stuff that's out there. Um, that, you know, we've talked in the podcast and you and I have talked about um, changes to the initiative petition process um, and, and literally everything in between. Um, but for listeners who, I mean, by and large, our listeners are probably also policy nerds, right? <laughs> um, who might be interested in just kind of knowing, is there anything you can, you can speak to that would kind of help uh, discern it, given where we are today, where, things might go in that in-between scenario? So I can give you my criteria because, and I think I'll have a lot to do with what bills are heard, speaker, trust me. So my criteria is healthcare bills and economic bills. And I can tell you the house's number one priority though, is the COLA bill. That is the house's number one bill that is sitting in the Senate right now. Um, it is not affected by this change in the budget because it's taken from the corpus um, admittedly, with the downturn in the market, uh, those funds are not doing as well as they have been. But this isn't like this downturn is not like the recession where we have reasons to believe it's a prolonged downturn. Every reason to believe this this downturn is because of COVID. So not giving that at a time when when our seniors really need that extra money, not giving that cola is a mistake, and we have an agreement. So. So two answers. Number one, house is number one priority. And I can speak on behalf of myself and the house is the COLA. And then me, I'm focused on economics and healthcare. So this is kind of a, an in the weeds question, but I think our listeners will forgive us for getting in the weeds too much. So this is the second session of the 57th legislature, right? So like bills that there are bills that were introduced last year, last session, that were, you know, they didn't get killed, they didn't get hurt, but they kind of carried over and they were able to be heard again this year. Is that a house rule or is that in the constitution? And is there any mechanism where you guys could change the rules so that like, maybe I've been working on a bill for the last two years and we're almost to the finish line. Do I have to start over next February or can we change a rule to, to allow bills to carry over? So when you talk about in the weeds with me, because of the bills I carry, that has a totally separate connotation too. Um, <laughs> we also carry most of the medical marijuana bills. But, uh, with, with Fat Getter, with Representative Fat Getter. So, um, so to answer that, it's in the Constitution. We actually are elected for a two-year legislative cycle. So bills filed the year after election can carry on two years. And constitutionally, you'll have to start over and in order to do that, you have to win re-election. Um, by the way, filing is coming up. So yeah. if you want to run for office, uh, it's, it's, it's still coming up on that time. I mean, I, I would not support except for, man, in this day and age, I've learned not to say absolutes, but that would have to be the most extreme of circumstances for me to ever support pushing back elections. I think that's dangerous to democracy. Um, I think, um, and as an incumbent, a low turnout, is, is bad for incumbents, and I don't care. I mean, we do not need to push back 
Uh, absent the again, I've, I've learned not to say never, but absent the most extremist of circumstances, um, everybody needs to do it. And I hate to do this. I'm about to tape a, tape another one, but I sure appreciate you having me on. Yeah, uh, Leader Eccles, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thank you for all you guys do. I really appreciate you. Okay, well, that was great to visit with Leader Eccles. Uh, big thanks to him for taking time out to join us in his uh, myriad of conference calls, I think, as we all have. Uh, as we kind of wind down, I want to remind all of our listeners, if you haven't already filed your income taxes, as Leader Eccles said, that deadline has been pushed back to July 15th. And as a reminder, uh, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that anyone with an earned income so working with an income of $56,000 per year or less, uh, ages 25 to 64, qualifies for the earned income tax credit. And now I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with this, the EITC. But a huge thing to know is that half of Oklahomans who qualify for it have not claimed it. And the average, like the average benefit of the EITC on the federal return is like $2,400. It could be as much as 6,500, depending on your income and the number of dependents. And so if you haven't already filed taxes, and even honestly, even if you already have, you can still amend them. Um, but if your income is, is below $56,000 a year, be sure that you claim the earned income tax credit because uh, it's, it, is, it is your money that you have already paid that is rightfully yours to come back, but you got to file taxes to claim it. If you have questions, uh, you can go to my OKC, excuse me, not my, you go to OKCTaxHelp.org. Uh, there's a nonprofit that's kind of promoting this um, just to let people know, like, this is a big deal. Oklahoma City, like as a, one municipality, stands to gain like $140 million out of this um, because it's money that would come back into our community. Um, so not the city itself, but like just our community and Lord knows we need that now. So that's my plug, okctaxhelp.org. You can find out more information. You can um, kind of estimate how much your refund might be on there. And there's resources for free tax prep help. Scott, do you have any final thoughts about healthcare stuff? No, man. Just everybody, please stay home. Just, just stay home, right? Like, I know people are talking about, like, you know, I was talking to a friend earlier this week. They're like, we just went to Target because we needed to do something to just get out of the house for a little bit. You really don't, right? Like, and I, right. I mean, like take a walk when you stay at least six feet away from each other and other people, like this is a big, this is a big deal and it is going to save lives. You know, I, I think I said this last week or two weeks ago, I'm probably going to say it every week, you know, six months from now, if it looks like all this was a major overreaction, that means that it worked, right? Success in this instance looks like an overreaction. If this doesn't work, we're all going to know um, because the stories coming out of Oklahoma will be like the stories come out of coming out of Italy, Seattle, and New York, and and none of us want that. So please stay home, be with your families. Um, my group of friends, like we've we've done now. I'm a you know childless thirty something, so this may not work for everybody. But like my group of friends, we've done virtual happy hours. Right, we've gotten people on. FaceTime from literally all over the country and sat in our living room and had drinks. And it's a blast. Um, you know, like find ways to connect with people, but stay home. Yeah. Bailey, any closing thoughts? 
Yes, a couple of things. So one, since everyone is sitting at home um, and you have time to relax, watch TV, catch up on the shows, we want you to also be sure to take the census. Um, you should have received a letter in the mail from um, the United States Census Bureau that has a 12-digit code on it. So just go online, take the census, because it means that more dollars will come to Oklahoma, uh, which means more uh, benefits for our schools, more benefits for our communities, um, improving our health systems and other things. And so please be sure to complete that census and count the people around you, count the people in your household, because the more people that are counted, the more money that comes to help our communities. And one question that I get often is, what can I do to help? What can we do, um, especially with um, Oklahoma food banks um, being at the epicenter of ensuring that people are getting food during a time when we're asking people to stay home and people are um, losing their jobs because um, their businesses are closing and all this kinds of stuff. And so um, to me, the best way that you can help um, is, of course, sharing information from Community Food Bank of Eastern Oklahoma's page or Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma for those who live in Western um, or Central Oklahoma and then for Eastern Oklahoma Community Food Bank. Um, the best place if you need resources and you're listening and you're like, I don't know how my family's going to eat, you can go to rfbo.org slash get dash help. Uh, and there you can type in your zip code um, and find a food pantry near you. Uh, and the same thing, okfoodbank.org slash get dash help for those who live on the eastern part of the state. Um, be sure to visit um, both organizations' websites because there are daily updates about where you can go to get food, um, where your kids can go to get meals, um, because our public school systems are still serving breakfast and lunch at many locations across the state. And so um, both organizations are there to be a resource. And of course, um, if you want to give your treasure, um, our organizations can definitely use the donation. So you can donate on the websites too. Yeah. And, and just as a plug, not because Bailey and I are friends, but uh, tomorrow, so we're recording this on Friday, the 27th. That means that tomorrow, the 28th is my birthday. Uh, I'll be 39. And, and because my birthday falls in the middle of a global pandemic where lots of people are, um, have lots of needs. Uh, I, my, I, you know, Facebook prompts you to do a fundraiser. And in the past I've done it for let's fix this because Hello. Um, but this year I felt it was much more important to do it for the food bank um, because the regional food bank here in Oklahoma City, I have worked with them through community partners for the last 10 years, um, different agencies that receive food, um, you know, certainly the HIV community uh, in which I used to work, as well as like a bajillion others. So if you're on Facebook and you are my friend, please feel free to donate on there. My goal is $5,000. We I just crossed $1,000 today. Um, that's a big goal, but I would love for anyone to help out and um, help us get there. So, all right. Well, that officially brings us to the end of the episode. Bailey, Scott, thank you both. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to Leader Virgin and Leader Eccles for joining us today. Don't forget, listeners, to subscribe and rate Let's Pod This on Apple Podcasts because that helps other folks discover us. 
Um, please, I mean, this this episode, perhaps in particular, has lots of great information about the state of our government here in Oklahoma. So please recommend this to your friends. Um, share it on social media. If you want to connect with us, you know, let's fix this. Okay, is our handle on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can get with Scott. He's at SC Melson. Bailey is at Bailey M Perkins. And, uh, me, Andy, is at Andy OKC. Um, you can find later Eccles and Virgin online as well. I don't remember their handles off the top of my head, but if you just Google them, I bet you can find it. Uh, our website is letsfixthisok.org. The show, Let's Pop This, is produced by Scott Bailey and me. Uh, we are a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network based here in Oklahoma City. And our theme music is called Rhino Funk by an artist named So Down. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with the government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week, everybody.